the biblical Jesus, who was not white and not Republican and not Christian, would really be threatened in this America. Good morning, and welcome to the fall season of the Special Report. We have all new shows every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 9 a.m. PST. Thanks to all of our viewers from Louisiana to Los Angeles. It's that time when I ask you to start a viewing party or to share this page with your online friends. Wow, on Friday, I talked about the dizzying news cycles that we have been experiencing over the last seven months and how difficult it is to keep up with the latest COVID-19, the election and other news that dominate the airways and our social media feeds. And as the contentious Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett begin today, we can expect the wrangling to intensify over the next three weeks. Against this tumultuous backdrop, the coronavirus continues to surge and claim the lives of nearly 1,000 Americans each day. White militia plot to kill Michigan's governor, fires rage, and protesters are continuously tear gassed in the streets for raising their voices for justice. All of these events are causing most Americans to experience unusually high levels of stress and anxiety. And most of us are scratching our heads asking, why has 2020 been the year of so much suffering? Today, we are talking to real people who are feeling the weight of the current events and experts are here to help us all make sense of it. My first guest is John Pavlitz. He is a Christian pastor, an author, and activist known for his social and political writings. His uber popular blog, Stuff That Needs To Be Said, is read by millions. He has two books out, one bearing the same name as his blog and is a collection of some of his most widely read and beloved essays on faith, politics and grief. And his second book, A Bigger Table, was recently released. And we're so happy today to be welcoming John to the show and having an opportunity to sit down with him during this really crazy period that we find ourselves in. So good morning, John. Good morning. It is, it is such an honor to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. Wow. Okay. First question. How do we make sense of all of this suffering that so many of us, and I include myself, uh, are experiencing this year? Well, there's really no way to, I think, make sense of it. I think what it is, it's an invitation for us. I think what we're seeing right now is an incredible relational fracture, and we're seeing huge levels of grief all around us. And so it's an opportunity for us to step in and recognize people's humanity and to share our own. Uh, there's really intellectually, it's almost impossible to calculate or understand it. And so we look at it as a place in time in which we can be the best person that we're able to be to the people around us. And I know you are a Christian uh, pastor, John, but, but you're also an activist. You're involved in, in so many social justice causes. And it's, it's, you know, this time is made worse in many ways by what we're seeing played out in the streets uh, as people are fighting for justice, fighting for a, a more fair and, and equitable criminal justice system. We have this White House, this president in the White House, that in many ways is adding fuel to the fire. Uh, have you, in, in the years that you've been a Christian pastor, ever experienced 
uh, not just suffering because of fires or hurricanes or you know viruses that we can't control, but situations that are actually being fueled by the folks who have been elected to lead us, you know, as a nation. That's yeah. That's the saddest part of this story. That normally life is difficult on its own with all that we are dealing with, but to have this malevolence at the highest levels of our government really exacerbating people's pain and manufacturing emergency. And I think what that's done is it's created a level of continual um, grief that we need to respond to. You know, the way grief normally works is we have someone, we lose someone one time, there's sort of an event and we spend our lives processing that one event. But this is sort of a daily recurring grief. It's a, it's a, a morning that's perpetual because we get up every morning and we don't know what we're gonna deal with. And we never have time to sit with anything long enough to really grieve it. So that's that's the sad part of what we're experiencing. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that's what we've been grappling with at the special report is the news cycles come so rapidly. And you're right. We don't have time to sit with any one incident. And it seems like when we think something is as bad as it can get, then there's something else that comes along that's even worse. How like, can you give us some strategies, some tips like you said, we wake up every morning not knowing what's going to happen, almost afraid to get an alert on our phones because it's like, oh, my God, you know, what's next? Yeah, I think it's it's really about getting whatever food we're not getting emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. So if we're in a place where we're surrounded by people and that is actually suffocating right now or the information that we're getting, all the news is disturbing us, we need to pull away and get some silence and solitude and rest but if the opposite is true, if, if isolation and loneliness seems to be what's causing our anxiety, I think community is medicinal. I think we need to seek out other people who are asking the same questions, carrying similar burdens, and holding similar outrage. I think those things really help sustain us in these times. And what are we to make, John? So much of, of what we're seeing coming out of the White House is, you know, we can, I think, understand to a certain extent. We don't accept it, but we can understand the white militia that, that is energized by Donald Trump and his rhetoric. But when we see Christians, when we see, you know, the evangelical right uh, embracing Trump and engaging in, in conduct that seems to be so anti-Christian, what are we to make uh, of that? Because I think for many Christians like myself, that, that has us also very confused. As a pastor, that's been the story for me. I, I never spoke about politics or, or individual politicians before 2016. And I really feel like the Christian right and Donald Trump have made this alignment together, this theocracy that is built on a religion of fear. I think Donald Trump has leveraged all the fears and prejudices that are the worst of religion. And he has capitalized on people who have raised, been raised with a God who is white, cisgender, heterosexual, American, Christian, and votes Republican. And I think he's really taken a lot of people and they, they no longer realize the disconnect between their religion and the Jesus of the Bible. And I, I listened to your uh, one of your blogs uh, just the other day as I was doing research for this show. And you really summed up, I thought very well, and I'm going to ask you to do it for us, for our viewers, why the Christian right has embraced Donald Trump. Can you just tell us, you know, the, the essence of that blog that you did to help us understand what's happening? Well, I think people have been raised for decades in a really toxic Christianity. And I, I think they, they can't even understand that the character of a loving God is an embracing idea. And so this this isolationism of Donald Trump and this 
um, separation that he feeds into, it really bears no resemblance to Jesus. In fact, I try to help Christians understand that the biblical Jesus, who was not white and not Republican and not Christian, would really be threatened in this America. And we, especially as a white Christian, we have to rep- understand that every minute and realize that that's who we're speaking for. The least of these that Jesus teaches about, it has nothing in common with this Republican cruelty that we're seeing. And I always thought, and being a student of politics, you know, the, the, always thought of the Christian rights as being in some ways self-righteous and having these really high moral standards. What happened with that? And, and you know, just take Donald Trump's infidelity, his multiple marriages. We know when Bill Clinton was in the White House and he had that uh, incident, he, you know, the indiscretion, the, the cheating on his wife uh, with the intern, the, 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 you know, however you want to characterize that uh, horrible incident. Let's just call it what it was, a horrific, horrible incident. The, the Christian right was merciless in terms of attacking him. But yet when we see Donald Trump, who's engaged in conduct by most standards would be considered, you know, exponentially worse than that one incident involving Bill Clinton, there hasn't been that same level of condemnation, that same level of outrage. Why, why is that the case, John? Well, I think we all have a story we tell ourselves about who we are and what we believe. And I think Republican Christians who've embraced Donald Trump want the story to be true, that he is somehow anointed by God or that he is somehow the redemptive choice. And so they'll be willing to deny facts and data and objective truth to hold on to that story at any cost. And so for someone like myself, I'm continually trying to present them with evidence of who he is and in the the results of his legislation on vulnerable people and then invite them in but there's such a strong divide right now between what they say they believe and how they're living Um, it's going to take a lot for many of them to see it and i think it's going to be about us changing the political structure so that there is a different christianity that has a voice again and we're going to see a lot of that john over the next couple of days with this supreme court nomination because what we're hearing already from the Christian right is, you know, th- this is about Donald Trump's promises made, promises kept around stacking the Supreme Court with very conservative voices, uh, people who have opinions that could endanger things like abortion uh, rights in this country, things like gay marriage. And uh, again, you know, they say that, that, that they support him because, you know, he is a, a champion for these causes. But But can you really be uh, pro-life and support, you know, the other policies that, that Donald Trump has become famous for? That's the staggering hypocrisy of this moment, that the idea of being pro-life, I use the phrase for humanity. And if we ask if Donald Trump is for humanity or for any of the policies that he has put forth, he's simply not. There is no way to say that you're for humanity and take away health care during a pandemic. And there's no way that you can be for humanity and separate children from their parents and on and on and on. And I think people who are moderates and progressives need to continually lift up the idea of a consistent pro-life ethic and continually point to the fraudulence of Trump Christians who seem to embrace the idea of the fetus, but anything beyond the birth canal is irrelevant to them. What is the response, John? I imagine that you get a lot of flack uh, from fellow pastors or, or pastors who have embraced Donald Trump and, and his form of, of you know, uh, governing as, as a Republican. 
you know, what, what is the response that you get when you speak so truthfully and so honestly about Trump and his policies? Well, it's not always pleasant, as you can imagine. But for me, the actual better story is the fact that the writing has reached millions of people. And that's really a reminder, not, not of myself as a writer. It's a reflection of how many people are asking similar questions, how many people of faith are wrestling with the same tensions, and how many are just disgusted by this uh, abomination that calls itself Christianity. That's the encouraging part. It's people of faith and people who aren't religious coming together to say our shared humanity is going to be the most important thing. And I'm hoping that that's what we're going to see in November. You know, one of the things we've been so struck by, John, with this president is his lack of empathy. Uh, typically in, in a crisis such as this, this coronavirus crisis, the hurricanes, the fires in California, you name it, uh, you would see a president address the nation and try to soothe and calm the nation and try to be a healing force We've not seen that with this president. When he talks about the virus uh, now, more recently, it's, it's all in the context of, of how he's this superior specimen, uh, almost, you know, in these nationalistic uh, terms that, that we can, you know, that harken back to the, the 19th century where, where white men were superior to everyone else. And, uh, you know, if you somehow are sick from the virus, it's because you are a weaker specimen than than he is, but no compassion for the 215, 16,000 people that have lost their lives. What are we to make of that? For me, what I make of it is Donald Trump represents the most damaged version of humanity. And so people are somehow um, aspiring to that or they're, are, they're feeling a, an affinity toward that. And so we really have to be a people who look for people who are hurting and try to figure out how to reach them in their story so that they never embrace someone like Donald Trump. For me, as a, as a Christian, that compassion is the sole marker of a believer. Do you care about other people? And the fact that he is incapable, it says something about him, but the fact that someone would embrace him says a lot about them as well. And that's where I turn my attention. I know who Donald Trump is. He is what he is. But it's people who claim faith in Jesus daily and yet align themselves with him. And um, that's the story. What do you think happens, John, if uh, Biden is successful, uh, you know, at, uh, you know, in this November 3rd election, if he's actually elected uh, to be the president, what happens to those, you know, those base supporters, those, those you know, evangelical Christians that have supported Trump, uh, you, know, uh, you know, for the last three, four years, where do they go? Where do they look for uh you know, support or, you know, I just don't know what, what happens to them. They're not going to just go away. They're going to still be right. here. What happens to their voice, I guess, is the most important question. Well, I think legislatively, they'll be marginalized. They won't have the power that they seem to have right now, and there'll be a different voice. And I think that different community that is going to be built will begin to draw some of them. I think there's like what I call the community of the convinced. So whether you're Christian or not, and you believe in humanity, and you see that in all the protests, people coming together, the more that becomes normalized, and the more we see that, I think some of those people are going to begin to be drawn toward that, and then some are going to pull into it. But we know Trump didn't create this this dysfunction, this discrimination, the bigotry. But he's enlivened it, right? As he's enlivened it, he's given it credence and he's nurtured it. And so I think we have to be the people that say, no, that's not acceptable. It's it's not normal, and uh, we're going to reclaim uh, virtues of compassion and mercy and love and justice. So your, your book, A Bigger Table, uh, John, you said was recently re-released. 
tell us what the, what's the book about and what you hope to accomplish in, in terms of you know getting the book out to the masses. Well, this is actually an expanded version of a book that was written in 2015 before the campaigns, before the election. And it was about how to bring people together in redemptive community, despite their differences. And of course, now it's a very different book for me. And I've written some new content for it. And it's really about saying, how big should the table be? And then how, do, how big can the table be, but not welcome discrimination? So diversity is a great idea, but it doesn't mean that bigotry gets a seat at the table. It doesn't mean that active violence gets proximity to do greater damage. So we're going to be welcoming and loving and hospitable, but we're going to declare what is wrong and what is right. How do you keep, you, you mentioned keeping bigotry and discrimination, you know, you know, away from the table. What we've seen recently, John, is, is when, uh, you call out the bigotry, you call out the discrimination, you know, it gets turned on its face and, and you then become the racist, you become uh, somehow the problem. So, so how do you create this big table, uh, welcome in these diverse voices and then deal with that critique from those who will say, if you don't invite everybody in, then it's not this big diverse table. Well, for me, the measuring stick is do people feel seen and heard and respected? Is their humanity um, honored at that table? And for me, a Trump supporter is always going to be treated like a human being, but the inhumanity of their beliefs or of their policies they support are going to be called out. So no one's ever going to feel like less than human in the presence of someone like myself. But that is exactly what Trump supporters do to people of color and to LGBTQ people and to Muslims and immigrants. They make them feel less than, and that's not acceptable. The bigger table says that when you get there, you're seen fully human and you're respected. And that's what we have to insist on. And just a couple of final questions for you, John. I struggle myself when, when I try to talk to Trump supporters who have bought into these false talking points. One of the you know, famous ones that he likes to tout, and we saw him do that again on Saturday when he invited uh, those couple of hundred people to the White House who were on the lawn of the White House. A lot of them were African-American and Latino. Uh, and he likes to constantly say that he has done more for you know, the black community than any other president, maybe with the exception of Abraham Lincoln, you know, who freed the slaves. But you know, he, he totally discounts what Lyndon B. Johnson, you know, did, FDR, uh, Barack Obama, and so many other presidents that we can uh, identify. Uh, but I have found African-Americans parroting those talking points back to me. And, you know, when they do, they are impervious to facts. You can't, yeah. you know, talk to them about the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, and all the other pieces of major legislation that changed the landscape for African-Americans that Donald Trump obviously had nothing to do with. Mm. Help me, give me some tips to talk to people like that who have bought into these talking points. I think that's the difficulty right now is that people have an alternate reality that they've created because you need such a thing to embrace this president. You need to believe what he says, regardless of whether it's true or not. The only way we can really reach some of these people, I think, is going to be through story, through, through showing us exact um, specific lives who have been damaged in the way that his policies have um, made their lives more difficult and made their pain um, more challenging. And that's really the only way we're going to reach people is through that sort of shared empathy, if we can tap into that, that shared story. Because right now, everything he says is uh, 
it's all a facade. It's all built on saying the words and making them be true. And we have to figure out how to pull these people back into a place of quiet uh, individual story where we can say, no, this is actually what I've experienced. It doesn't matter what he says. I want you to hear my story because they can't argue with that story. And just finally, John, for anyone who's asking that, you know, big question, where is God in all of this? What would you say to them? My best guess is that God is in the outrage. God is in the unrest that you feel. You know, God is in the not in the pit of your stomach that returns every morning when you look at this injustice and you and you're not right with it. And so I lean into that not rightness and say that's the closest thing I can find to the reality of God. And I push against those things that are um, damaging humanity. Well, that's a good way to think about where God is in, in this time. Thank you so much, John, for your important voice. Make sure you check out uh, his blog and both of his uh, books, the stuff that needs to be said, as well as uh, Bigger Table. Keep lifting your voice, John, on, on these really important issues uh, and helping us make sense of it as we try to heal during this very difficult time. And, and I'm encouraged <laughs> that right. we're going to get to the other side of this and it'll be because of folks like you who are leaning in. So again, thank you so much for sitting down with me this morning. Thank you for the work that you do. I hope we'll get a chance to do this again. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Special Report. Please take a moment to share, subscribe, and rate this podcast. I always want to hear your thoughts. You can share your comments with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn by following at Ariva Martin. Thanks and be safe out there.